The Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio. Hello, you're listening to the Cambridge Cambridge 105 Radio and welcome to the Cambridge Film Show. You're a one-stop shop for shop talk for all things, all films worth talking about on big screens and on streaming. So lean back somewhere cozy as a sequel to last year's Cold Snap embraces us once again and let the soothing opinions of our critics here in the studio guide your filmic voyage this weekend. I'm Lorcan O'Neill, and with me here today are Emma Marchant. Hello. Simon West. Hello. Vicky Eyre. Hello. Matthew Taylor. Hi. And Stuart Pask. Hello. Uh, we've got another walloping six film lineup for you today as award season gets in full swing. Kate Blanchett conducts a powerful presence in Tar. We journey to the scenic Moorgate to catch some movie magic in Empire of Light. Continuing west along the coast to Cornwall, we join a mysterious and lonely woman in Ennismain. A Burnley entrepreneur takes on the banking industrial complex in our streamer of the week, Bank of Dave. There's a hot new toy out that's not all what it seems in Megan. And finally, we join Brad Pitt and Margot Robbie in a golden era Hollywood uh, with the bombastic Babylon. So first up, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. If you're here, then you already know who she is. Lydia Tarr is many things. As a conductor, Tarr began her career with the Cleveland Orchestra, Chicago Symphony Orchestra, the Boston Symphony Orchestra, until she had last arrived here at our own New York Philharmonic. In 2013, Berlin elected Tarr as its principal conductor, and she's remained there ever since. Lydia Tarr has also written music for the stage and screen. She is one of only 15 EGOTs, meaning those who have won all four major entertainment awards. Thank you for joining us, Maestro. Thank you. From Trek director Todd Field, perhaps most recognizable for his portrayal as jazz pianist Nick Nightingale in Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut, Tarr tells the story of the world-renowned and debatably greatest living composer Lydia Tarr, whose reputation gets called into question when details of her problematic personal life fizzle to the surface. Emma, uh, Tarr's got a lot of Oscar buzz. Uh, what's, what, is, what is it that's giving the film so much buzz? Well, it's Kate Blanchett's performance. I mean, as far as I know, I, I think it's, it'll be a very long shot for best film, I would imagine. Although, I think Todd Field has done the most amazing job in directing because, you know, performances are belong both to the actor but also to the person behind the camera. And my goodness, he has coaxed something quite remarkable out of Kate Blanchett as Lydia Tarr. I also think what I really liked about this film it's I mean it's a long watch and I I thought that maybe the third act lacked a bit of the um sort of excitement of the first two acts like it ran out of steam a little bit for me at the end but the brilliance of of the kind of the unraveling of of both you know her world that she's created around her her personal life and the bits of the jigsaw that you see coming together is so brilliantly done what I really liked it almost felt like a piece of music and it just keeps cycling around the same things the same things in her life it, it, it shows you the same scenes over and over again and but yet something stops that from ever becoming repetitive or boring and that probably is the fact that you could just stare at Kate Blanchett the, the hair the look the con- I mean she must have immersed herself in this role so I, I was looking at the credits at the beginning and you know you have like you had piano coaches and, and and you know you had so many assistants for Kate Blanchett but well deserved it really is the performance and, and it deserves all the buzz it's getting they may as well just wrap up every award and post them to her now well, Vicky, um, is is there more to the film than the central performance? Um, I think it's just the, the the pacing of it as well. I mean, obviously, like Emma said, it is the main 
the main character of this film, but the surrounding characters create this kind of dynamic so that the story, like, it doesn't ever become dull. So you mentioned repetition and just, she is, you're so on her side at the beginning. You are completely involved with Lydia Tarr and you can see the bad actions that she's performed, but you kind of just pass it over in your head because she's so incredible in your eyes at the beginning. But the slow burning downfall that she is, um, when you see her actions just become more to the centre the kind of voyeurism that's involved with the people around her recording her and you become self-conscious and then that last arc that you were mentioning that's slow it's really quite painful uh, to like suffer through and I feel like the emotions I sat I came out of it thinking am I a bad person for being so on her side at the beginning and then at the end I'm like no she's just a terrible terrible human being and then the deduction that she goes from the Berlin Philharmonic to I don't want to spoil it but to something low-key in a you know, a country that's not kind of um, recognised to us as being a mu- musical centre point is is absolutely brilliant. So two two pretty glowing recommendations there. Um, the the subject matter of the film itself, as the guys here have alluded to, uh, is um, topical, potentially divisive. Simon, you're a bit more co- cooler on this film. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised at uh, Vicky's comments because I found the character cold and distant from the very beginning and I never warmed to her I never liked her um, you're just slowly watching her get what she deserves um, a bit like the the design of a lot of the locations was absolutely fantastic but her house which is all brick and, it was all concrete and cold and devo- devoid of warmth just like her it really did come across and I felt much way about the film um, if you're going to ignore Kate Blanchett's absolutely fantastic performance, and she is centre of every single scene in this film, and I'm not going to say she is absolutely fantastic, but I couldn't connect to it. I couldn't connect to the story, I couldn't connect to the film, I couldn't connect to the character. I mean, Vicky mentioned the ending. I don't know how it was in her showing. In my showing, the entire audience burst out in laughter at the end, and they were laughing at the film not with the film. That was not the case in my screening. Although I must admit, I was at a silver screening, so it was a mature <laughs> But no, the ending, I, I, lo- I love... When I said the pacing slipped a bit in the final, yeah. it, it, the, the actual... The, the, the end, I think, is, is quite brilliant. There are some quite brilliant reveals that come, mm. and I think that... Well, I was going to say, is it, is it perhaps too gauche? Is it too hard to... Uh, it's almost uh, Mean-spirited to a, to a certain know, point? It, well, I say, I... I the film just didn't work for me. I can appreciate why people like it, but it just didn't work for I me. I think it takes you from this kind of picture of liberal... You, you, you think it's a film that's being made for the kind of people that maybe it's slightly lampooning as well, like sort of the liberal elite, if you like. I think there's... I mean, there's brilliant scenes at the beginning when that real... It, he's playing himself, I think, the New York Times journalist who interviews that, and that's... That's a long scene, excellently done. The scene where she's teaching a guest class at Juilliard is also long and really painful to watch. It's relenting, and she she mentions a comment in that. She was like, uh, the way you talk about this composer is the way that Renee Renzepi talks about reindeer hearts and moss, and I was like, that is such a niche thing to relate to. I was like, this is for a certain audience, and I think he wants to reach it, but I was like, for the people that didn't quite get that at first, I was like, I'd, you could be lost from the beginning, and un- relatable like Simon's experience may have been. I think. 
I do think it's a hard film to engage with, but sort of engage emotionally with, but it doesn't mean you can't. So let's say I really admired this film, but I'm not sure I loved it. But I did, as a piece of filmmaking, I think it, it's quite spectacular. I mean, those first two scenes are very large info dumps, which I think were needed. Mm. And normally you do try and avoid info dumps in films. But it did give me the knowledge I think I needed to follow through what was going on and what they're trying because you know not everybody understands the role of a composer or what they're trying to do and how to interpret music so the so those info dumps were useful and it was quite educational and a conductor of course I must admit that most of my knowledge on conductors has been based on the character of Ronaldini in Julie Cooper novels so I think it was quite good to actually watch you know Maestro I like that everyone calls her Maestro everyone calls her Maestro the conductor is, is you know the heart and soul of the orchestra and um I thought there was, but there's a very touching scene towards the end where she's watching her hero. She always says that Leonard Bernstein is her hero, and then she's watching an old video, and that she did seem a little more human at that point. I think. Uh, well, I, what Emma said, it kind of winds down in the in the in the third act, and what Simon says is the info dump. I actually really loved all the info dump. Like we we said, it's it's very educational, and I actually wanted more of that. Do we think it's intentional that the film shifts from? the professional world of music and we just kind of we get in the tar we get in the the kind of misery of this everyday person is that I mean, is that intentionally supposed to kind of put us off do we I, think i think it is the film i mean the film starts off unconventionally by doing the very very old system of they show you the entire credits at the beginning i must admit normally you want to walk out the credits and to be honest part of this i wanted to walk out the credits at the very beginning of the film and it kind of like put you off at the start so it does immediately try and wrong foot you mm. and it puts you in a state of mind where you're not quite sure what's going on and with the character and what you see on the surface isn't necessarily what you're going to get and it is quite effective in that. I disagree with the. I do disagree with the credit thing. Actually, it worked a lot better than what we were talking about. The Unforgiven, the, the, the Ray fight. They did that quite recently yes, with yeah. the credits at the beginning. But I was going to say, I think that the last act tries to make it into a more. I won't say accessible exactly, but in some ways it's a very, um, from, from, you, like, like we talked about, the first half is quite, it's a very unusual film, but it seems like at the end it, it, it's becoming a more conventional film. That's what I'm trying to say. It, becomes, mm. it, it follows a more conventional story arc at the end, which it hasn't chosen to do throughout the rest of the film. Okay, lots of varying opinions. Just real quick, uh, who do we recommend it to? Music lovers, people who just um, love dramas. I mean, I have got a friend who does work in music, in classical music, and he's also a film geek. And he's been saying it's one of the most amazing films he's ever seen of the year already, and two stars. You know, it's anyone, like seen it twice. And anyone who appreciates a barnstorming performance, to be yeah. to be honest, anyone who wants, you know, if if you want to see what the bus is, you know, what the bus has been about, Kate Blanchett's performance, then yes, anyone who would appreciate that. Also, if you like Berlin, yes, yeah. <laughs> it's like a third character yeah. in the film. Yeah. it's it's her, it's the like the orchestra, and it's Berlin. Yeah, absolutely. So whether you like the film or not, it's uh, definitely a powerhouse performance to see on the big screen. If you can, Tar is a certificate 15, and it's playing at all three Cambridge cinemas. Uh, now moving on from the wide world of classical music to a local movie house. Look around you. This whole place is for people who want to escape. People who don't belong anywhere else. How do you feel? I do feel a bit numb, I suppose. The world is changing. Wow. You can't reverse it. Another world. Happy New Year!
Director Sam Mendes follows up his Bond films and War Flick 1917 uh, to show life in a little cinema in the in 1980s Margate. Acclaimed cinematographer Roger Deakins captures the performances of Libby Coleman, playing a returning staff member suffering from mental health issues, Michael Ward, playing a young man facing racial abuse on the street, and Toby Jones, a projectionist who just really loves cinema. Matthew, did this reignite your love of cinema? Um, not necessarily my love of cinema, but it did reignite... <clears throat> My love of Margate. I mean, <laughs> Vicky, you were just saying how Berlin was the third character in Tar. I felt Margate was the star character in, in Empire of Light for me. I mean, I'm, I'm from a seaside town myself, from Portsmouth, so I really kind of appreciated that slightly depressed seaside aesthetic. Uh, so not cinema, but definitely some Margate love from me. Okay. Uh, Simon, this isn't exactly the globetrotting action-adventure that Sam Mendes has given us before. Um, he's going back to kind of smaller stories. Um, does he bring a lot of technical flair to this one? Um, yeah, I think mainly because of people he brings in with it mm. rather than his story writing. Um, I'm a big fan of cinematography in films and Roger Deakins, you can't get better than that. And he made Margate look absolutely gorgeous. He made the old one down cinema with another character, um, beautiful. Again, one of my favourites, a score by Trent Reznor and Akas Ross. Again, as I mentioned, when they recently did, um, oh, what's that from last year? Bones and All. Yes, yeah. Um, absolutely loved the soundtrack through all of this, um, which helped overall the atmosphere of the film i absolutely adored it um i think i'm in one of the minority here but i thought this film was absolutely beautiful i i loved its you know respect for film the old style to setting in the 80s you can i can just about remember some of that um so it had some nostalgic factor olivia coleman is absolutely fantastic as the um middle-aged woman who's you know coming back trying to reintegrate with them after the mental health uh, incidents michael ward who's from uh, top boy and i think the small axe who is in is was absolutely superb pretty much everyone you know and you can never get enough toby jones mm -hmm. so i really bought the main relationship between um, olivia coleman and michael ward mm. uh, through this film um some things may have been a bit light on detail with the historical where they just touch you know the racism mm. and the issues he do which it's almost like there were like too many stories he was trying to tell. I can I can see that, but I was absolutely charmed by it. I loved all the time I spent watching there, and I wish you know it could have been longer. Oh well, Vicky, um, Simon kind of alluded to it there. There's kind of heavy heavy stuff in here. There's like local neo Nazis, uh, forced inst institutionalization. They're heavy themes. Um, do they all come together? Does Mendes blend them all together perfectly? I I really don't believe so. I I think Simon hit the nail on the head when he said that there were two quite heavy themes, and there just wasn't enough focus on them. Um, it just kind of saying like they kind of were talking over it and they definitely have like a boiling point of each issue in the film but it almost felt just as it was it passed by very quickly and it just didn't develop into a full story at all uh but my when it came to the cl clashing point of um there was like a march along margate pier um and the cinema itself gets tacked and you've learned to respect this building throughout the film and when that happens and the characters that you've come to know even through all their issues that it's brought up in the film and their dynamic you see them really at a frightening point and my stomach did drop throughout that but i just i don't i think 
there was too much happening and they just needed to be either a light shone on Olivia Coleman with her kind of main issue or Michael Ward like it could have just been a lot more attention towards his character because he kind of fades out towards the end absolutely and I just um, even as fantastic as they both are uh, there is the actual the only kind of light part for me was Toby Jones and his lo- like everyone's mentioned his love for his little cinema projection booth and that kept me there and calm and yeah there was a there was a lot happening. Emma, this is uh, Sam Mendes's first solo screenwriting fair. Presumably, comes from some a place close to him. Uh, should he have maybe let someone else punch up the script? Well, yeah, I was going to say Vicky. Touched on it there. I thought that Michael Ward was woefully underwritten, to be honest. I had no sense of who he was or what made him tick, and so then it was really hard to invest in this, you know, what is meant to be obviously a very touching romance that he's having with Olivia Coleman. She, Olivia Coleman, is one of our finest actresses, I get it, but I felt that, let's say in comparison to the to the performance we were talking about in the other film, this just felt a little bit like paint by numbers. Even her one, although I did enjoy her one great moment where she kind of gets gets her, her, her revenge on um, mm-hmm. Colin Firth playing her sort of odious boss. That was, <laughs> that, that was a fi- it was a fine moment, but it, it mm-hmm. felt like th- there were, it wasn't very nuanced because I'm not sure that this wasn't a particularly nuanced, nuanced performance. Simon's completely right. The star for this is Roger Deakins, I think, 73, and he can still lend a film like nobody else, and it looked absolutely gorgeous. And I do believe this is kind of personal to, well, it makes sense it's personal, it's personal to Sam Mendes, but he should have got some, this script, like I say, it just wasn't, there wasn't enough depth. Although we haven't given a shout out as well to, um, Tom Burke, Tom Brooks, sorry, who plays the um, the manager of the cinema, who's also delightful. And maybe we can have too much Toby Jones, because let's not forget, he was in The Pale Blue Eye last week. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, apparently Sam Mendes wrote this script um, three years ago. He started writing it during lockdown, and I think it was a lot of per- uh, very personal. Apparently it is very similar to what happened to his, his own mother, so it was a personal story to begin with um but what it appears to be is that during lockdown he just added too many other touches to it because he had the time and he Mm. wasn't filming it and i think part of that is why it's ended up getting a little bit too muddled but uh, i mean overall it was just i think part of it's just also explains you know the intersectionality of everything people have problems but more than one person can have other problems and you know it's when they come together, you have the moments, but you don't get the full story to everything. You just get the story of the moment here. It, it did remind me a little bit of Joker, in, in a sense, in that Joker was a film that I felt just had too much going on. And this sort of, was it about mental health? Was it about racism? Was it about, you know, the love of the lost art of projectionism? Was it about how men are awful? And I just thought, well, I kind of want a bit less that I can focus on. I I also didn't really get why it needed to be set in a cinema. I felt like you could have set it in a bowling alley and (laughs) called it Empire of Strike, and you would have had pretty much the same film. Um, well, I've, I've, we've, I've actually um, seen quite a few older people walk out of the film, uh, literally in tears over Olivia Coleman's character. Do we think this is legitimately catered for that kind of crowd or for modern audiences? Is it just too cliched and maybe a little exploitative? My mother-in-law 
adored it, absolutely adored it. I think, you know, like you say, I think it did. It, it maybe speaks to women who were as well Olivia Coleman's age in the um, 80s and, had, you know, growing up in a much more misogynistic society than we are living in today. I mean, we, I, I take for granted all the opportunities I get, but that's because it's 2022. Um, I think it's a, it's got some lovely touches in it. I did love the bit where, you know, because she's never seen a film, because obviously she, you know, she has to keep everything very separate. And even though she's been working at the cinema for so long, she's never actually gone to go and see a film. And then Toby Jones up, well, you need to just go and see a film. Mm-hmm. And then there is a, a, a rather glorious scene of her watching. And so there is some love for cinema in there. I think you're a little bit unfair. Let's <laughs> think if we got Empire Strike. But it is no cinema paradise, though. I feel like maybe no. people are, maybe filmmakers in particular, are always trying to make their own. I must sort admit, of I think I, I mainly enjoyed all the films that were on the marquee and the posters mm. in the background because I know those films. And if you didn't know those films, you wouldn't necessarily relate it. But, you know, when it's something like, oh, Chariots of Fire, when they've got Blues Buzzers, and you can tell the mm. time through all the posts, and yeah. they think that was stir a good, cra- good stir crazy. That made me, crazy. that reminded me of the day when, you know, yeah, when Richard Pryor, Pryor was, was, you know, Richard God at that point. So, yeah, it, it's, it's very nicely done. It's a very nice, can I say, is it a nice, it was a nice film, but I just didn't yeah. feel it. It didn't sort of take off for me to the heights I was hoping it was going to. It's in- incredibly well put together, but the whole is surely less than the sum of its parts in this case. Yeah. Um, even as a math teacher, I hate that phrase. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it, no, yeah, agreed. Because like you say, it's incredibly, it's consummately put together, it's professionally put together, but it just, it didn't, it failed to, to reach me. So you mentioned some of the like kind of back, background details with the um, the posters, just to kind of cap it off. Was it at least a believable period setting? Does it feel like you're stepping back into the past? Yeah, 100%. I feel like if I took anything away, I thought I was I was back then. Yeah. yeah I, mean, I was eight, I think. I was about eight when this was set. And yeah, it did feel, you know, it had that. It, the 80s were not, you it's know, It was more the late great. 80s. I was known mm. cinema, but it was definitely recognisable to what cinemas used to be like and what it used to go to. Sure. Well, a transportative, uh, heart-tuggy movie, Empire of Light is a certificate 15 and is screening at all three Cambridge cinemas. Uh, sticking to the coast, uh, we're off to a spooky Cornish Isle now. Um, Fisherman's Friends by way of Ingmar Bergman. Ennis Main follows a self-sufficient hermit, whiling away the days, making observations of local flora, chatting with the local vessels on CB radio, and looking after a mysterious young woman at her ramshackle island home. Um, strange visitations and blurred memories are quick to turn this paradise into something else entirely. Um, have you seen? You were a fan of the previous film, the director Mark Jenkins' previous film, Bait, Bait Simon. Bait was absolutely fantastic. I think it was my top three in 2019. It was How does this follow up to that? Very, very poorly. Um, he, he seems to have gone back because um, he, well, Mark Atkins, he makes a lot of more experimental films, and what he's known for is using a hand crank 16 mil camera mm. um, and then recording all the foley and sounds afterwards, yes. which is one of the things he did on bait um, using a black and white camera. Um, and I think what he's done is taken the clout he's got from bait um, and gone back and made another experimental film, um, which probably works for some more than others. Mm. Um, there's practically no dialogue in the film, mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons we have no trailer for it. Um, and the music is more... Um, it's sound effects yeah. and, you know, the odd piano and w- weirdness going on. 
it is a quite a dense film at first, um, where you just see uh, Mary Rodvine, the volunteer, repeatedly checking on flowers, and you go through her day with, are they rituals, are they not rituals? Mm. What, what exactly is she doing? What is she trying? It's never actually clear. Yeah. And they repeat that, and they repeat it again, and, and then again, and you start getting a pattern, and then things start changing and getting weird, and you start wondering... Um, you know, who are the people she's speaking to? Why is she starting to see visions? Is time reversing? What's going on? And there's a lot of suggestion in this film. It's not clear what actually happens by the end of it. You're not 100% convinced what the plot is actually meant to be. It is got quite a lot of experimental scenes which are unsettling at times. Yeah. Um, and quite effective. It's the kind of film you really want to talk afterwards about. You want to go with a few people who are into film and strangeness and chat with them, and then you can have your own theories. I've got my own theories. I'm not going to talk about it on air because I think it's actually quite spoiler. If I lie, it will spoil the entire film for other people going into it. You want to go in and make up your own mind about what you're seeing here. Um, I was hoping something like The Lighthouse crossed with bait and a bit more of a story. I had no idea going in what I was going to get. Yeah. And, you know, it wasn't quite expected. And I can see why some people appreciate it, especially people who like, you know, like film, like art films, like the weirdness of films. But if you're going for a horror film or, you know, they call it a folk story, but there's no story there, yeah. you have no history, you have to make it up yourself, then go see it. Um, yeah, no, I was uh, I, I came in this without having seen Bait, but I knew there was all this uh, hype around the director, and it's been it's in, and been actually quite popular. Um, I think the f- the folk aspect definitely. Um, but you kind of mentioned uh, some kind of disturbing images, but there's not. I don't think there's really a a genre that really well encapsulates the film. But horror is probably the closest. Did you find it scary? Were you on the edge of your seat at any point? Um, it wasn't scary. There were some scenes which were kind of graphic and you do start wondering it's moving to like Cronenberg body horror mm. but kind of in a, in a light kind of way you know there is some blood you do suddenly start is it ghosts is it not ghosts are they spirits are like I said it's all yeah. these horror folky wicker man kind of imagery which you'd often see in other films yeah with plots it's you recognise it from Blair Witch Project, you recognise it from The Wicker Man, you'll recognise it from other films, but there's no overarching plot or story around it. It is all imagery. And do you think they he relies on the 16mm kind of grainy film footage that kind of looks like a BBC documentary from back in the day? Um, do you think he relies too much on that? Because like you say, it's, it's all... He has said that he has been going for the um, found footage kind of... Appeal not so much the found footage and mm. they found it, but this could be a lost 1970s, 1960s archival kind of archival thing. horror film, which is the kind of style they had to in the, at that time. Yeah, um, the 16 mil camera it means you do get some really crystal clear images sometimes, but quite often you'd often get a lot of grain mm. on other scenes and. Again, it's one of those things, it's like, how much of this is intentional? How much of this is just what he's trying to do? Is yeah. he trying to tell more or not? Yes. Yeah. It's quite a blank slate and a lot of it. And it is, you know, how much are you prepared to read into this film and how much is he, how much is going to come across? Um, repeated viewings could give you more. I've yeah. only seen it once, so I can't say. Yeah, no, I, I was... Um 
I was looking for a bit more horror. I think I was looking for a bit more of the uh, abstract visuals. But you think do you think audiences are taking on a fun enough ride, or is it just a bit of a dredge to, like you say, is it worth finding out this mystery if you're not completely engaged in the characters? I mean, one of the best things I can say about it, 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 it is one and a half hours, which when we've had three-hour yes. films in Tar and Babylon recently mm. is an absolutely fantastic thing. So at least you're not going to be committing too much time to it. I I would say that if you have seen Bait and you love Bait and you go into this, you can be disappointed. It is completely different. And I'd still recommend going to see Bait because um, that was absolutely fantastic. But that had the story. Although, again, it was out of order and you had to try and piece together what's actually happening, what's the story it is clearer and more obvious than what this is and I think it will take a few viewings and talking to people to actually be able to piece this together, I mean if you like a puzzle of a film and want to go through and get the atmosphere I mean to be honest I've been on an island in Lundy a few times which is yeah. absolutely wonderful stone wind, windy island in the middle of the Atlantic and it's lovely and watching Ennis Men Ennis Main, sorry it did remind me of that, the Stone Island. It did give me that feel. It's like I've been there. It's lovely to get away and all of that. So I yeah. did enjoy the film, the location and the placing. Um, but I admit it's not a film I can recommend to everybody. Well, it's, it's only 90 minutes, like Simon says, so you won't sacrifice too much time if you don't like it, or you might love it. Cambridge 105 Radio. Every Saturday night on Cambridge 105 Radio, Chris Brown presents Cambridge's original Saturday Night Soul Show. It's a fantastic thing. I'm Cambridge bred and born, and so I present my show and play my soul and dance music in Cambridge. People that listen to my show, then they'll go out to one of my gigs, and when I get there, people will say, oh, that track you played on your show, can you play it tonight? It's like a gang, if you like, that I've got on a Saturday night of soul fans. Chris Brown's soul and dance show, Saturdays at 6 on Cambridge 105 Radio. Nick Wohm's Professional Painting and Decorating Services is your local award-winning decorating business with a great reputation. Our professional and friendly team can cover all aspects of decorating for domestic, commercial and industrial properties. So whether it's a bedroom makeover or an entire office block that needs repainting, we'll get the job done on budget and on time. Check us out on Facebook or Instagram at Nick Wohm's Professional Painting and Decorating Services to see pictures of our work. Or call us today on 07794 516 291. You're listening to the Cambridge 105 Radio, and this is the Cambridge Film Show. Uh, Lorcan here, and with me are Emma, Simon, Vicky, Matthew, and Stuart. And we're just about halfway through our roundup of films, big and small, available at home and in cinemas. Just to say, uh, the previous film, Ennis Main, it is a stick at 15, and it's playing at the Arts Pitch House from this coming Friday, and there's a special screening at the Light Cinema on Monday the 6th of February. But now, uh, our streamer for the week, uh, this film might peak your, peak your interest rates. Um, up till now, I've helped create 150 jobs. Yeah. In here, there's hundreds more. Yeah, look, I get it, Dave. It's not just jobs. It's about the quality of life for a whole community. This is all really impressive, OK? But unfortunately, the Financial Regulation Board doesn't care about this. question I want you to answer isn't can the banker Dave exist? The question after what you've seen today, 
is should the Bank of Dave exist? Bank of Dave uh, stars Joel Fry as Hugh, the cynical and put-upon solicitor who's tasked with the dead-end trip up north to support a minivan salesman who aims to um, create the first inaugurated bank in 150 years in England. Uh, but can the charismatic salesman Dave, played by Rory Kinnear, convince the city lad his dream is worthwhile and combat the corruption of the banking industry? Stuart, um, safe to say this isn't a particularly taxing movie, but was it engaging? Yes, so um, we'll talk about one of the other films we've seen this week later, Babylon. I was saying to Simon off there beforehand that if if Babylon is going to end up being the the busy night out uh, of the town, then uh, Bank of Day is going to be the hangover cure. It's the, it's it's an easy watch. Um, it, it's 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 really um, enjoyable and it's really accessible and it's relatable as well because it's uh, tackling a lot of themes that are really prominent in the world at the moment. Um, as you mentioned in in the in the in sort of the preamble there. We are dealing a lot with a lot of financial crises. I think this one in particular focuses on the one from the sort of the mid-noughties, um, sort of the, black, the, the Northern Rock um, financial crisis. And it asks a lot of questions around, well, based on their performance in these scenarios and these events, um, are they the sort of people who should be running and allowed to run our financial institutions? And, and then, of course, Bank of Dave comes along and he says, well, actually, um, why can't there be another way why can't there be a uh, a banking system that caters for its customers its community and looks after them first and it, so it's built around that that theme and and the true story around it because this is all of course um based on a on a, on a real character it's all based on um, this, this gentleman called dave who's a, a local of burnley um runs his sort of minivan firm minicab firm um and, and can afford to help out a bit and so he's trying to put something back into his community but at the same time, in a way that is legal and is authorised by the financial institutions in, in the country. Um, yeah, it's, 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 quite, it's quite, a, quite a big theme to wrap a, quite a sort of small movie around. <laughs> yes, well, I was going to say, Matthew, do you think this is um, kind of, by making it a very light-hearted, uh, consumable film, do you think this is kind of a clever way to get everyday folk involved in like the conversation around banking? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think in a similar way to The Big Short, by making it light and comedic, they bring these quite kind of complex issues into the sort of in a sort of manageable bite-sized package that you could digest. I could definitely imagine, you know, this being the kind of movie that you'd show to your mum at Christmas to try and persuade her to stop voting Tory. <laughs> although although there's a marked lack of actual politics in the movie. Um, it's extremely broad. I mean, everyone in Burnley is good, honest folk, and everyone in London is a sneering metropolitan elite who sits in wood-panelled rooms talking about why only people who went to Eton should be allowed to run a bank. But that doesn't mean it's not a worthwhile endeavour. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I was going to, based on just seeing the poster, the Netflix poster, and seeing, oh, it's called Bank of Dave, and mm, this doesn't really look very interesting. But actually it is. Give it a go. It's a lot of fun. I really struggle to see how anyone could not at least enjoy something about this, unless you happen to be a banker. Um, <laughs> and a, a big shout-out to a cameo from Sean Dyche, if you're a football fan. Yeah. Great, great character to appear in the movie. 
Emma, was it all too a, all a bit too much schmaltz for you? Well, yeah, I was going to when he said I died when um, Matt just said yeah, I defy anybody to say they didn't enjoy something about it, and I thought actually <laughs> I could be that person, but I'm not because I did enjoy both Joel Fry. It was really good to see Joel Fry front and center of a movie. He's you know he's played a lot of character roles or supporting roles in a fair few British comedies and dramedies, and he is. He's, he's very likeable, as is Rory Kinnear. So those two likeable performances are what I hung on. But my goodness, when you cannot put this and the big short in the same sentence, you know, I wouldn't even put them in the same, like, <laughs> paragraph or book in terms, of, in terms of... I was so bored by this film because I think from the moment that, that Hugh says, Burnley, yes, I think I've heard of that. Don't they have a football team or something? And then, you know, and then at one point, there's also this terrible kind of supporting story Line of a romance shoehorned in there with Dave's niece, which I have no idea. I mean, they, they, they play fast and loose, obviously, with the true story, but um. And at one point, you know, they're walking along, looking down the lights of Burnley. She's like, oh, it's so hard to believe that this was once the richest town in England. <laughs> oh, and it's like, what, well, you don't think any of us have heard of Cotton and the Industrial Revolution? It really, the whole, it just, it was, oh, it, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Matthew and Stuart. I really, really <laughs> dislike this film. It just felt, felt like one of those films that just did not need to be made. But clearly, I'm wrong. <laughs> uh, I, I can sort of, I can see. In terms of criticism, I mean, it was an enjoyable watch, but it was the sort of film that doesn't really matter because I watched this at home on Netflix, and I, and I was quite. I, I had a very fussy cat at the time. It was wrapping, wrapping around my ankles and wanted something. So it was one of those films that you could pause, step away from, it and come back to without any real sort of detriment to to the flow of the movie. Um, so yeah, it's 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 by no means like the most engrossing movie ever. But it, but it's fine. <laughs> it, it didn't need to be made, but it's perfect for streaming. Like, you, yeah. yeah, I wouldn't want to go to the cinema to see this, but just sat at home, maybe check your phone every now and again. You are right. We do need to keep our British actors in work as well, so maybe it's important that we make an idea. Yeah, it's funny you should say it didn't need to be made. By the same token, the audio you heard there was a clip and not a trailer because they didn't seem to be bothered to make a trailer for it either. <laughs> as much as we looked yeah. online, we couldn't find one. <laughs> well, Simon, is, isn't it, is it not hard? I would say it's, it's hard not to fall into this nice comfy zone watching Joel Fry and Rory in this. How did you feel about it? I mean, I did end up looking up to see who Joel Fry was and realised he's a guy in Cruella, mm -hmm. and I also looked up who he was in Cruella. You know, when an actor makes you look him up twice in two different films, <laughs> you know he's a good actor. Mm. And Joel Fry was fantastic. Well, I was going to say, but surely that means you forget him. I was it's say great to see uh, Cathy Tyson again as well in, in here. Um, it's always good to see her. Mm. But... You know, I was not looking forward to watching this. It yeah. was the one we were saying, really. And mm. at the end of it, I really enjoyed it. I can't, I can't argue. I did compare it to a Hallmark film. I think at one point when he got the city guy coming down up up north, um, falls in love with a local girl, realizing the big city life isn't all it is to be, and actually just being friendly to your neighbours. What it's all about. Yeah. Um, we've got Tar this week. We've got Empire of Light. We've got Babylon. We're reviewing all these Oscar-nominated films. But this week, when people at work have been asking me, what should I watch? What good mm. movies are out? Mm. I have been recommending Bank of Dave. Oh. It, it is inoffensive, it's fun, it all passed the time. Well, you it's got on it your on TV Netflix. as well. You got it on Netflix. Surely you wouldn't nominate, but, surely you wouldn't recommend that over the other films at the cinema, though. Please, Simon, tell me not. I mean, really? <laughs> well, it depends who you're talking to. It depends who you're talking to. I can't recommend Babylon to everybody, despite the fact you're going to hear what no, we're about No, but you loved Empire later. of Light. And, and I loved Empire of Light. That's beautiful to And again, at. Empire of Light I'm was sorry. got some very, very heavy scenes, whereas mm. Bank of Dave is incredibly inoffensive. It, it offended me. <laughs> 
karaoke scenes. I, I, I was surprised I hadn't heard the story, so I'm glad they did make the film because it was interesting. It made me look up the actual true story. Mm-hmm. And also, the one thing we haven't mentioned so far, it's got Def Leppard in it. Well, case, w- case closed. Wonderful schmaltz, wonderful schmaltz, or offensively schmaltzy. Bank of Dave is certificate twelve A, and it's streaming on Netflix. La- um, now on to uh, her name is Megan, and she wants to play. I designed Megan to protect Katie from feeling lonely. She will recognize you as her primary user, and when you do that, you're going to pair with her. Crazy. It's insane, right? Megan, your goal is to protect Katie from harm. Blockbuster and horror master James Wan co-writes this horror comedy. Well, we'll get into that. Um, <laughs> wherein an engineer is forced to care for her orphaned niece, and rather than adapting uh, to the guardian role, um, builds an untested mechanical doll um, to be the girl's best friend. Um, Vicky... Yes. What was the tone of this film? Um, I, I I think I just got thrown in at some point. Um, obviously, it wanted it was a lot of AI development, and it wants to show you just the, the fear of robotics of the future. But um, I've seen that all before, and then it becomes very violent very quickly. And I laughed the majority of the way through, and by the time I realised it would it was finished. <laughs> um, so the tone is, is very up and down. You're going to be taken on a ride, a very short one, which is quite relieving. Um, but it, it it's like you mentioned earlier, it's a missed opportunity of what is a great marketing campaign because everywhere mm. I look, there she is. <laughs> I can't quite escape her, but the it, maybe it's a small letdown and I, I needed it to be more scarier from James Wan himself. Uh yeah, I, I, I found a few missed opportunities. Um, Matt, w- was it scary? Was it funny? How did you find it? I found it not jump scary, which I appreciated because jump scares aren't really particularly meaningful. But in, ter- in terms of the gore, I was actually shocked at how little there was. If you're a gore hound looking for some sort of Chucky-esque rampage, you're going to be very disappointed. But I, I was coming at it from the perspective as a relatively new parent. I've got a almost three-year-old at home. And for me, the real villain of this film was Gemma, who seemed to want to completely abdicate her role as a parent to this young child who's just had a, a tragic loss of her parents. And for me, it was all about the horror of using devices to parent your children. And there's, I thought the, the, the funniest bits of the film were definitely the satirical adverts for the toy company. And at one point, than when there's an advert for the Megan doll and it says, oh, let Megan do the parenting so you can get on with the things that matter, which yeah. I thought was a, a brilliant line. But, uh, yeah, just, just the way in which it raises ideas of is it a good thing to have someone else do the menial tasks of raising your child and what's lost along the way? And I found that to be far more scary to think about than any sort of twee rampage set to a, a TikTok dance or... Well, yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I think there's lots of really good questions, contemporary questions being asked, but they potentially... And we, you mentioned the gory the gory aspect. Apparently James Wan has said there is a gory version of this out here, which raises the question, who... Well, um, what what is the purpose of the film? But Simon, 
I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Child's Play Chucky movies. There's God knows how many of them now. There's two series as well. Does this film go enough? Go far enough with a similar presence because those films are pretty wild. Oh, not at all, not even close. Uh, however, I am going to actually praise it because I was surprised I did enjoy it when I really didn't think much about the posters or the trailers or anything because it wasn't what I expected. Um, for a good three, two thirds of this film, I felt it was closer to the 1980s uh, kids' horror classic adventure movies yeah, it felt yeah, more like ground, yeah. maybe a bit like gremlins but like short circuit and the amblin mm. and it mm. was almost like a girl and her robotic best friend and you know two-thirds into it i could still imagine them going off having an adventure and taking down a corrupt banker or something you know yeah. um and that was a feel it had and it was funny it was entertaining i thought it was quite enjoyable um i totally agree with matt that a lot of the it's asked a lot of questions, which I'm not sure it answers all of them so far, but it really does show the good and bad of, you know, the AI going on there. Um, it was kind of surprising when it did shift to the horror aspect in the last third, because it could have quite easily have avoided that and actually, you know, become a whole different film. Yeah. Um, so I don't think it was. I mean, I would have thought, I think it's difficult 15, but I would have thought, to be honest, it'd be more suitable for, you know, 13, 14 year olds who would probably be able to get away with this. It, it's a PG-13 It was PG-13 in the States, and it looked like it was I, I was restricted. surprised it wasn't a 12 But as I said, it's mm. like, this is like Gremlins, you know, or, you know, it yeah. is those 80s borderline No, I retract films. that. I think um, that But was... there were a little yeah. at the end, maybe one or two. Well, Emma, I was, I was going to ask, but it's the, the the main character is this uh, kind of late twenties, early thirties uh, businesswoman, and then she adopts a really young girl. Who is this film for? Because then you've got the PG thirteen, which is kind of in the middle. Who's going to enjoy this film? Because it's doing quite well. I well, I tried to persuade um, a couple of my anyone either of my teens to come with me, and they turned me both down. Um, I I don't know. We went. I, the screening I went. There was probably a group of about five. 20, around, like, I guess it were students probably, late yeah. teens, early 20s guys, and they were having a riot. They were loving it. And, there, and I retract what I said when I said maybe it could be a 12A because there are a couple of quite nasty... There's a bully, and that mm. is that is quite unpleasant. So yeah, maybe maybe it is correct to be a fifteen. Um, you mentioned the character of Gemma. It's Alison Williams. I feel a bit. She doesn't necessarily choose to be a parent. She is signed up as a guardian, so it's not even like she's actually. But, but I think one of the biggest struggles I had with this film was the chemistry between between herself and Katie, the, mm. her niece, played by Violet McGraw. You couldn't really understand why Gemma wanted so desperately to keep her because obviously there's this woman coming mm. in to sort of you know look at look at the the, the situation she's in of situation whether or not it's the right one for her and then Gemma's desperate to keep her and you're like but why because you seem completely disinterested in children or anything else I will say I think Megan is brilliantly designed yes I mean that costume is on point the doll itself is 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 is, is awesome looking but I think they and I was entertained I was entertained um, well there's some really odd but I found that there's Ronnie Chung in it playing mm. the big Boss David, and I found that really oddly, that was that was very strange. Oddly paced perform. Oddly, oh, I thought he was hilarious. He was so funny. Role. The last time I saw him was in Crazy Rich Asians. It's mm. the same man in the same mm. role, and I'm like, give this guy something, something more. Well, he <laughs> yeah. he seemed to be in a different film from everybody else. Yeah. I felt yeah. the way he was delivering his lines and everything else. And Alice, Alison Williams. Really, you know, I, I watched her a lot in Girls, and she she's very good at playing an odious rich person in Girls. Girl, she was also very good at playing an odious rich person in Get Out. I think when you're trying to buy her as an AI genius, 
mm. um, who's kind of built a, a version of Iron Man in her in her basement, and then Megan, she's slightly less convincing, but. Well, just to wrap it up real quick, do we want to see more of Megan? Do we want to see more of this premise played out? I, I think I don't necessarily want to see more of Megan, but I would like to see more films that t- are greater than the sum of their parts. I think mm. th- this was my favourite film of the of the past two weeks, purely because it's you know you haven't got the big names, you haven't got like the big budget, you're just doing a good story, you've done it well, you've su- succeeded at what you've set out to do. It's really funny. Raises some good questions, and it's not too long. I just wanted to throw one thing out, actually. If you did like this, you're interested in it, Kishiro, sorry, Kazuo Shigaro's latest novel, Clara and the Sun, takes a very similar premise, but it, 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 not in such a horror way. And I'd really urge you to seek that out, and because I think that that was, yeah, this is they're, they're very good companion pieces. I know we don't recommend books at all that often <laughs> on the show, but I'm saying do Clara and the Sun. Yeah, none, none of the rest of us read books. We just watch movies. Um, <laughs> So, uh, Megan is a certificate of 15, and it's playing at the Cambridge uh, Light and View Cinemas. Uh, last, and by no means least, uh, it's time to get just a tad debaucherous. I think what we have here in Hollywood is high art. If you could go anywhere in the whole world, where would you go? I always want to be part of something bigger. Yes. Let's go! Something that lasts, that means something. You know, when I first moved to LA, you know what signs on all the doors read? No actors or dogs allowed. I changed that. Good morning. Good job for you. Director Damien Chazelle follows Whiplash, La La Land, and First Man to bring together the inimitable inimitable talents of Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, Diego Calva, Gene Smart and Tobey Maguire to delve into the raucous underbelly of early Hollywood. What starts as a party where everyone's invited turns quickly to a moral, morally gate-kept club in a much safer world. Um, Vicky, Cecil B. DeMille, eat your heart out. Um, Hollywood clearly doesn't listen to our show because this film is a rollicking three hours and change. Um, it's a behemoth. Uh, do you think it deserves that Titanic runtime? Absolutely. I had a great time during this film. Um, I went in, obviously, apprehensive of how much liquid I needed to consume through, um, before I started this. But I, you know, I held on for dear life throughout this because I did not want to miss a single scene. I, from, the ex- from the very beginning, you're thrust into this 18-rated uh, Babylon universe that Damon Chazelle has brought upon you. And I just followed it to the very end. I thought I was almost in like a, I was being thrust into the three lead roles everyone's acting their life out in this you've got Brad Pitt Margot Robbie and Diego Calver as your three main characters and I did not I just want I did not want to let go but you are literally taken throughout their entire peak of their lives and when you come out at the end three hours or not you are exhausted but so happy for what you've just experienced is my experience uh, Stu, uh, similar along the, along the lines of the runtime, do you think the runtime will make anyone antsy or do you think there's anything else uh, in the film that would make people antsy in their seats? Antsy in their seats? I feel that's like a targeted question. I mean, I, re- I had a really good time. I think the only thing that made me antsy is just the fact that it was so intense mm. the entire time. Um, and, I, and I really felt there were points in the seat where I thought I was locked in position. Like, I was really intently watching it. At some points it was, it was laughter, sometimes it was legitimate stress of what I was seeing on the screen. It was a proper roller coaster uh, of sort of tension. And um, 
Yeah, it was. It was definitely. It was definitely a ride. It was. Um. It. It. The, the, it was, you definitely felt the length of it but like so often we say on this show was the length of the film justified and I say yes it, it was um, sometimes I found, found myself sitting there sort of questioning it as it was playing out in front of me but as the scenes came to their conclusion I was like yeah that makes sense well Matt you're, you're a bit cooler on this film um, do, uh, is it refreshing to see a, a Hollywood film though that doesn't just completely pat itself on the back that kind of digs into the dirt a little bit yeah, definitely. Seeing, seeing something that's doing something a bit different is always welcome. And I didn't dislike any particular aspect of this, but I just felt a little bit like the kid in Matilda being forced to eat all of Miss Trunchable's chocolate cake. <laughs> it was just a bit too much. I mean, three hours and change, it's going to be a struggle for a lot of people. There were several walkouts in the screening I saw last night. I thought it was just people going to the toilet, but then they didn't come back. There's, I mean, there's some fantastic scenes in this. My personal favourite being Margot Robbie's first attempt at being in a talky movie, which is just an absolute masterpiece. But for me, it was just too much. Um, Simon, do you think the film went uh, deep enough into the just how outrageous those early days of Hollywood were? Do you, or did you feel like you learned more of what it was like back then? I don't think you could show any less than what they actually did. I mean, the the... The party scenes at the beginning made Wolf of Wall Street look tame. Um, quite quickly on, you just hit in the face by everything you see. It's like, okay, they are showing it. Okay, that's fine. And it's just, as everyone else said, it's intense. The, the credits and the title screen comes up after 45 minutes. Mm. So you think it's long, but by first pre-titled credit scenes, 45 minutes, but it just goes by like anything because it's just so intense and just mm. watching everything um it's a interesting um history of hollywood um i love the second scene pretty much being the uh filming where everyone's filming simultaneously because you didn't mm. need sound so you didn't need to worry about it and then you move on to the next day to hollywood and it is definitely a you know a potted history of Hollywood in this film showing all the excesses of stardom and how much it will tear everybody apart um, and you know grind you up and not throw you out like you know it did um, it does keep referencing Singing in the Rain um, if mm. you've not seen that film it is one of the best films about Hollywood ever so watch that first um, and again a bit like Emperor of Light it finishes on a, a beautiful montage on how amazing cinema is and the technology and it just makes you love everything about films and cinema and stars and the excess and Hollywood and really just going for it. Well the tie into the runtime as well I think there's there are so 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 many references to films throughout cinema history particularly I think Damien Chazelle really loves James Cameron because a few of those yeah. popped up a few times. Um, there is a, a slew of wonderful cameos. You've got Spike Jones in there as a crazy German director. Um, you've got Flea, you've got Eric Roberts. Were there any stand-up performances for anyone? Uh, I'm just going to start by saying one of my favorite. You've got an incredible string of Australian actresses in there. You've mm. Obviously, Margot Robbie's the star, but Samara Weaving's a small cameo, but my absolute favourite was uh, Phoebe Tonkins starting the film off with a quite debaucherous scene, and that qu quickly finalises her character, and I'm like, okay, these cameos, uh, these actors, these everyone is, like I said, everyone is given their absolute all, even if they're only on the screen for two minutes. Like, it's just incredible to see. I really enjoyed seeing Eric Roberts back on the yes, screen. I, I'm yeah. sure he must have the record for most IMDb credits. <laughs> but yes, yeah, seeing him uh, trying to talk down a Texas rattlesnake or whatever that was, was just fantastic. 
Um, and just to kind of wrap up, uh, so uh, Damien Chazelle um, is a, a collaborator with his um, composer, Justin Herzl. I believe they both went to Harvard for this. And they said they used, they didn't want to use 20s jazz because it's a bit overplayed and everyone's very familiar. So they used EDM, they used house music. How did the music tie into everything? It made it it's so much more alive. I couldn't, I couldn't get out. The intensity that Stuart was talking about, I think, was just absolutely cataclysmic because of the music and the soundtrack. But I was on that adrenaline ride and I didn't find it too much until I came crashing down at the end. I found it a bit too much in the trailers, but mm. it actually worked in the film. I'm not a big jazz fan, um, but I didn't find it that distracting. It did fit in. Um, Damien Chazelle, like I said, I've, I've got a hit and miss. I didn't like La La Land. I wasn't keen on First Man, um, but just like Whiplash, it just brought it in, kept the pace throughout the entire film, um, and it's an essential soundtrack. Um, well, to, um, just to, to speak about the, the trailer, I do think this is one of the, probably the worst marketed films I've seen in a while. <laughs> the film you see is not the film that's been advertised. And just to warn, the first five minutes is very front-loaded with debauchery. So if you can make it past that, it does ease up a little bit, I should say. Um, yeah. Babylon is a very well-earned certificate 18, and it's screening at all three Cambridge cinemas. Um, that's all the time we have for today. Please do join us on Saturday, 3rd of Feb, where we'll be bringing out uh, the tissues for Brendan Fraser's big screen return in The Whale, and Spielberg flexes the movie magic in semi-autobiographical The Fablemans. Uh, so now, for now, it's goodbye from the team, and goodbye from me. Cambridge 105 Radio. 